0: If you haven't been here the last few weeks, let me just summarize where we have been over the last few weeks, and here it is. You're a sinner, 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 we're all sinners. So basically that has been the message the last few weeks from the Apostle Paul. He has stacked bad news on top of bad news on top of more bad news. But thankfully this morning we come to the first transition in the book of Romans. So the book of Romans could be divided into four sections. You have the wrath of God, then you have the grace of God, then you have the plan of God, then you have the will of God. Today we are moving Um, From the first transition to the second transition, moving from the wrath of God to the grace of God. Between Romans 3, verse 20 and Romans 3, verse 21, we have a Grand Canyon where we move maybe slowly, difficultly, uh, in a difficult way from wrath to the grace of God. After a long, dark night, the sun begins to shine in the horizon and it's hopeful for us. Now, the text we come to today has been described like going to a Brazilian steakhouse. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is glorious. It is absolutely glorious. So The waiters just keep coming to your table with skewer after skewer of different meats. And when you're seated, they give you a round card. On one side, it's green. On the other side, it's red. If you put it on green, it means keep the meat a-coming. Don't stop. If you put it on red, it means stop, no more. But there's no need to ever put it on red until you're ready to walk out the door. I mean, there just might be a little hope of a little more. Just just think about it. Filet, sirloin, leg of lamb, sausage, ribs, chicken, and then all kind of things wrapped in holy bacon. I mean, it is glorious. It is amazing. In fact, I heard Brother Mike Mondanza went a few weeks ago With his family, I heard he ate so much meat that he actually ascended into the third heaven. It was that glorious and that amazing. Amen? So today, I say all that to say this. Today, we are coming to the meat of the book of Romans. And I am asking you to have the internal card of your heart flip to green today. Flip to green. that You say, God, I want all the meat that you want to give me. I want it, Lord. I am desiring of it. I need what you have for me. You alone, O oh God, have the words of eternal life. Speak them to me. So God, so here it comes. And what I'm about to say is not an overemphasis. The verses that we come to this morning might be the most important verses in the book of Romans. Some scholars even say these are the most important verses in the whole Bible. Donald Barnhouse, a great one of my favorite commentators he actually took these 11 verses that we come to today and he actually put a heart over all of these verses showing the picture of god's love for us but he says this of the 11 verses we come to today he said understand them and you will understand the whole bible fail to comprehend their true meaning and you will be in darkness concerning most of scripture for here is the revelation of the being of God and the nature of his being. Here is the revelation of sin and of the depths of sin. Here is the revelation of God's righteousness and the infinite demands and provisions of that righteousness. Here is the vindication of the nature and character of God, righteous in all that he does. So all of that is contained in the 11 verses that we come to this morning. So I'll Pray that let's dive in together. Let's keep those internal cards flipped to green today. And let's behold the greatness of this word for our souls today. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. As we read Romans 3 verses 21 through 31 together. You can see in your Bible or it's on the screen as well. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to this, your word. God, this is your word. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than than a two-edged sword, and it is able, God, to change our lives. Lord, speak, oh God, to us today. Holy Spirit, speak through your word. Illuminate. Show us, Lord, the truths that we need to see. Show us the things that we must hold to. Show us the things that we must believe. And Father, we pray today, Lord, that even the, the difficult Versus, Lord, the difficult truths, you would, by your spirit, open our eyes to receive them as what they are, your word, your standard, your truth. Lead us in this time, God, we pray that we know that we are people that have many concerns, many things in our hearts and minds. God, may those things in this moment become less and may you become greater. And Lord, This amazing thing that happens as we focus on you, Lord, you become greater and our problems become less because they take their rightful place before you. May that happen, God, in this moment, all across this room and those that are watching at home. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So this morning, we are considering the greatest question that has ever been asked in this world. And that question is this How can a person be right with God? So no more important question has ever been asked, yet this question does not lead, or for some people, does not lead to delight, but leads to a dilemma, especially for those who are trying to earn their way to heaven or trying to earn God's favor. For the road to earn salvation is like climbing a ladder that never ends, and yet once you get to the end, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. That's the picture of works. And I've witnessed several people who have basically summed up their hopes of heaven like this. Well, in the end, I just hope that my good outweighs my bad and I'll be good. The problem is, brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That's not God's standard. But then others object and say this. Well, how could a loving God send good people to hell? Or how could a good God send people to hell? But Again, that's not the question of the Bible. Did you know that the ultimate question of the Bible is not how can a loving God send people to hell? The question of the Bible is this, how can a holy God allow sinful people into heaven? That's the question of the Bible, not how can a loving God send people to hell. The question of the Bible is how can a holy God allow sinful people into heaven? The Lord can't have a dilemma at all, but if he could, it would be this. That although God loves the people he created, God cannot ignore, he cannot excuse, he cannot arbitrarily just forgive our sins since justice demands that sin must be punished. Yet praise be to God, his divine love keeps reaching to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He reaches out to the guilty. Did you know that the story of redemption, we call it the Bible, so the story of redemption from beginning to end, in is about a holy God who demands a righteousness that because of sin we are unable to provide. We can't provide it. We, we are unable. Yet on three different occasions in the 11 verses that we come to today, Paul alludes to God's righteousness being manifested, being revealed, or being shown. Now as I explained last week, the word righteousness literally means right clothing. That We have to be clothed Rightly. That on our own, in our sin, we are not clothed rightly. Throughout scripture, we're reminded that God does not look on the outward appearance, as pretty as many of you look today. God looks on the heart. He looks right through to the very heart of us. Therefore, our hearts must be clothed in his righteousness. So because we don't have a righteousness of our own, at least none that's acceptable to God, we need the righteousness of another now, I know there are objections that begin to rise in our minds in this moment going, "What? Well, I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things. You don't know how many sweet little ladies I've helped across the street. I'm a good person. But then listen to Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All. So what does all mean? All. So all means all. That's all all means. So all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All of them all of them, all of our, anything that you and I put forward as this is my good deeds, God says they're filthy. They're filthy. Thankfully, God in his mercy, God in his grace provides a righteousness for us. Today in the time that we have, I want us to unpack, th- or excuse me, five, I'm so used to three, five truths. Now I know that sounds like a lot, I listened to two messages this week. One had 12 points and one had 11 points on this. And I thought to myself, Anthony would kill me if I tried to give him a 12-point message. And Mike would be like, what are you trying to do to us? So I move it down to five. And I believe in these five truths, we're going to get the, the whole picture of what Paul is telling us in these 11 verses. But point one is this. Righteousness has been revealed through the intervention of Christ righteousness has been revealed through the intervention of Christ. When God interrupts into human history, everything changes. Up until this point in the book of Romans, Paul has emphasized the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon all mankind. But the tone of this letter completely changes when we get to this two section or this this section and to two small words in verse 21, but now. Listen to verse 21 again, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. According to the 81 verses that we have already studied in the book of Romans, the whole world stands guilty before God. But now, but now are two words, sweet words of rescue. This isn't, it's not just a literary shift here. This is a historical shift. Something has happened that changes everything But now turns the corner from the condemnation of the entire human race to the possibility of justification and salvation for us all through Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I mentioned him before, has an interesting introduction to Paul's words, but now. And they're kind of lengthy, but just bear with me. He says this, The true understanding of the Bible consists in a true understanding of the meaning of its main words. No one can claim to know anything about the Bible if he is not thoroughly aware of the meaning of such words as sin, salvation, justification, sanctification, redemption, imputation, the new birth. All of those words we're going to cover through Romans. And then he says in similar terms that are the links in the chain that hold the whole scripture together. But in addition to these great words, there are some shorter words that might seem insignificant to the casual reader but which take on tremendous importance as we go deeper into the meaning of the revelation which God has given us. So he keeps on. In our study of Romans, we have arrived at a point where two little words separate all that has gone before from all that comes after. Certainly, this is the dividing line which separates the first two and a half chapters, which have been on the subject of man's complete ruin in sin, From the next section, which is occupied with God's perfect remedy in Christ. Two little words divide then and now. And he finishes it this way. Then was everything that had had happened before Christ died. Now is everything that is contingent upon the death of the Savior. Then we were dead in sin. Now we are alive forevermore. Then we were under the law slain. Now we are under grace, raised from the dead by the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know this. That's your testimony if you're in Christ. Then I was dead, then I was in sin. Then I was a slave, but now, but now I'm alive. Then I was blind. Now I see. That is a testimony. Praise God, Christ has intervened for us. He's intervened for us. So righteousness has been revealed through the intervention of Christ. But then secondly, righteousness has been revealed, number, number two, through the promise of Christ through the promise of Christ, so the glory of Jesus shines more clearly when we see him in proper relationship to the Old Testament. We read in verse 21 again, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Even of the prophets, Peter says in, in Acts 10, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All Scripture, but especially the law and the prophets, point to Jesus. He is the point of it all. So the law, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, anticipates Christ by exposing our hearts and persuading us that we need to be saved. That's the whole point, as we saw a couple weeks ago, of the law to point us to our need for a Savior. But then in a broader sense, we read about individuals throughout the Old Testament who their failings become or look a whole lot like our failings and show us that their hope is our hope. The hope that they have becomes our hope. Then we have the promises scattered throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. And they anticipate Christ um, by creating a longing in our lives in every area of our lives that only Christ can fulfill. So as we read through the prophets and the difficult, dark days the prophets walked through, there is a desire in our hearts for something that only Jesus Christ can give to us. Then we think about the offices of the Old Testament. So you have three particular offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. All of those offices pointing to Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins. And all of these offices invite us to look to Jesus as the prophet greater than Moses, to look to Jesus as the priest greater than Aaron, to look at Jesus as the king greater than David. See, God's way of justifying sinners has always been the same by faith in the promise of God. If you never thought about it, think about it this way. We have Old Testament saints. We have brothers and sisters in heaven that live before Christ. Now, how do they make it in? How do they make it to heaven? Here's the reality. Through faith. Think about it. believers on this side of the cross. So in the Old Testament, before Christ came, they looked ahead to the cross. They said, God, you made promises. We believe those promises. And God said, because you believe those promises, you're righteous. Now we believers on this side of the cross, we look back and we say that is what our Savior has done for us. And he is a good, good Savior for us. That is our declaration. That is what we, we have the promise. Brothers and sisters, we have him. It's all him. I wish somebody would get excited about him, but I guess I'll just do it all for for all of us. We have him and he will forever be enough, which leads us to number three. Righteousness has been revealed through faith in Christ. And this is when we begin to dig down a little bit, through faith in Christ. Faith is mentioned eight times in these 11 verses and 38 times in the book of Romans. Paul is not speaking, though, of a generic faith, but a faith with a particular object, faith in a particular person, meaning Jesus. And I want to say something that I I hope will startle you for just a second. Because it needs to. And that is this. Please hear this. Faith doesn't save us. Let me say it again. Faith doesn't save us. How do I know that? Because Jesus saves us. Faith is not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. And if you think that you have faith strong enough to save you, Satan has deceived you. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. But think about this picture. And think about these words. Well, just have faith or keep the faith are nonsensical statements that we hear every day. Faith must have the right object. And the right object of saving faith is Jesus. It's the picture of the word. Again, look at verses 21. And 22 on the screen it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Through faith in Jesus. Now let me explain it this way. How many of you guys have ever um, made up, filled out a resume? So most of us in this room, you know, a resume are basically all the experiences and all the skills that we hope will be worthy will make us worthy of the position. In a resume, you make sure that you put nothing in the resume that could disqualify you and put everything in the resume that you hope will qualify you for the position. You hope that as you turn this resume in and it's so good and so amazing and the font is great and all this is great, that the person that's hiring will go, I've never seen anything like this. Well, here's the problem. When it comes to religion and many in our culture, we believe that that's the same way it is with God. We believe that one day we'll stand before God, and we will have created our own resume where we highlight all the amazing good things, and we make sure that we diminish all the bad things that we've done, and we hand it to God, and we sit there smiling, hoping um, that a halo will form around our head, and God will look at us and wink at us and say, I've never seen anything like this. (laughs) You You are in, and we think that's going to be the case, and here's the problem. Brothers and sisters, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Listen, Christ is not one among many options to make it to heaven. He is the only option. He is the only way. The only way to have faith in Christ, though, is to admit your total need for him. We can't be saved until we understand. Or put it this way, Jesus cannot be your help until you realize how helpless you are. Jesus cannot be your sight until you realize that sin has made you blind. Jesus can't be the words that you long for until you realize that you have diminished his word. And Jesus can't be the, your, your life and your your joy until you realize the death that you lived before him. We have to understand these realities. And this is where I want to remind you that it is the object of our faith rather than just faith itself, which is the crucial issue. If I stood up here today and I said, hey, guys, and I walked up here and I grabbed Pieces of wood that looked like wings that had feathers um, glued all to them. And I said, guys, I have faith. I've been praying and I have faith that I'm going to come up here on the roof right after church and I'm going to fly from here to London. Now, there might be a few of you that would say, don't do it. But there'd be many of my closest friends that said, I think you can. And let's make sure we get the photos and get the phones out to record every detail. But here's a problem. I could say, I believe I believe I can fly. I mean, I, I can do all this. And guess what? When my foot leaves the roof, I'm crashing and burning. <laughs> Quick. Really, really fast. But let me, let me put it this way. And this, this isn't a perfect illustration to understand. But equally, I might just have barely enough faith to board a flight from here to London, trembling nervously as I do, yet the object of my faith will accomplish what it promises. Why? And I know that's not that's that's an imperfect example, but here's the picture. On my own, I've never done it. I won't do it. Get from here to London, but I can trust something that's been there every day, over and over and over and over, showing again and again and again that it can do it. And brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. We can't, but we're trusting a God who has done it again and again. And again, again, but again, it is not faith that saves us. It is Jesus Christ, faith in him alone that saves us. And here's why I'm making sure I point that out, because this was my struggle, brothers and sisters. Satan, at a point in my life, led me to believe that my faith, whether it be in a prayer or my faith in faith, was the determining factor of my salvation. And any time my faith faltered, any time doubt swept in, Satan was there to go, well, maybe your faith isn't strong enough. And so I would say, well, God, I want more faith. God, give me more faith. My faith isn't strong enough because my faith isn't doing this. And when that begins to happen, here's what Satan does. Well, if your faith isn't strong enough for you to obey, then how do you know your faith is strong enough for you to be saved? And then you begin to struggle with that and wrestle with that. Well, how is my faith strong enough? And what Satan does is he allows the object of your faith to be faith. So that faith becomes a work. And by no work will we ever enter to the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. The point is this. The only way you and I will ever be before God in true righteousness is to come before God, get this, and hear this with empty hands. God, I have nothing to bring to you only thing I can bring to you, God, is sin, my mistakes, all the screw-ups in my life, and all I have, God, before you is what Jesus did for me. And guess what God says? That's enough. It's enough. Brothers and sisters, make sure your faith has the right object. Make sure your faith has the right object. Make sure the object of your faith, both now and every day that you live, is Jesus Christ. So through faith in Christ, number four, quickly, righteousness has been revealed through the payment of Christ. And this is where we're going to bog down just for a second. And just hang with me, through the payment of Christ. Verse 21 again says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 24 then says this, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This was to show God's righteousness. So there are three powerful doctrinal words that I want to place before you because Paul places them before us in verses 24 and 25. For the next few moments, I'm going to ask you to put your big boy or big girl theological pants on. And we're going to step into some deep waters, but we're going to do it together. And I pray by God's grace, I'm not going to lose any of you in the middle. We're all going to go deep in and we're all going to come out together. So the first word is this, justification or justified. Paul lays before us, all are justified by his grace as a gift. The word justification means this, to be declared not guilty or to be declared righteous. Justification is not a process by which we become righteous. Justification is a pronouncement by which God says, you are righteous. Know, know the difference. It's not a process by which we become righteous. It's a pronouncement by which God says, you are are righteous and justification is forensic not experiential meaning it it's a legal act it's not an emotional feeling like whenever you're justified by God God doesn't say that all of a sudden we're going to have goosebumps all down the back of our neck and um, we're going to be able to to jump and and dance like Michael Jackson in our salvation and do all these things that we've never done before And, and that way the picture is listen Justification is a legal act, but when we come to understand what God has done for us and what God has declared over us, it will impact our joy. It will impact our souls forever. It will delight us in Him. But justification is also both exclusive and extensive. By exclusive, I mean there's no middle ground. Either you have justification or you don't. Now, if you don't have justification, praise be to God, today through Jesus Christ, you can. And praise be to God, if you are justified, there is no place in Scripture by which you will ever be unjustified. So understand that. If you ever come up to me and say, well, I believe you can lose your salvation, show me one place in Scripture where you can be unjustified after God declares you justified. And here's the problem. If you begin to do that, then you have made salvation a work. You've made it a work. It's, it's the picture of what we do. I'm going to explain why we do that in just a second. And how easy that is for us. Here's the the picture. And once again, I want to just place this before us. Justification is exclusive, but it's extensive. And when I read this this week and studied this this week, it was just absolutely beautiful. And it swept over me. And I found myself with my eyes filled with tears and just rejoicing in God. When I say that, that justification is extensive, here's what I mean. When God says you are forgiven, He is including not only my past sins, Not only my present sins, but my future sins. Everything I have ever done or will ever do stands before God. And God says, I have forgiven them all. And brothers and sisters, that is our hope. That is something that we cannot do for ourselves. Listen, if you are brought before a judge and all the evidence has been laid before, and the judge is going to say one or two things, innocent or guilty, guilty. And just a little hint, you want him to say innocent, even if you know you're guilty. There are not many criminals um, at the courtroom that you say, hey, do you want them to say guilty? Even if they know they're guilty, they go, no, I'd love for a miracle. I'd love for them to look at me and say innocent. I would love, absolutely love that. But here's the point. God looks upon us, even though we know we are guilty because of Jesus, and he says, you're not guilty. You are not guilty. It helps to explain the word justified by breaking it apart. And if you're taking notes, write this down. When you say justified, it means this. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. And that is how God looks upon us. We are justified. Just as if we'd never sinned. Henry Smith said this. Christ hides our unrighteousness with his righteousness. Christ covers our disobedience with his obedience, and Christ shadows our death with his death so that his wrath can't find us there. God overshadows our death with his death so that his wrath can't find us. The second word is the word redemption. Now, redemption is the language that comes from the Roman slave market. It means to set someone free by paying the price. So they would go to the slave market in the Roman day, and they would pay a sum of money to redeem someone from slavery. And they would pay the price. They would have to pay the full price. And in a greater and more gracious way, Jesus has paid our price. He's paid the price that we could not pay we have been redeemed and let me say this and please make sure you hear this we are not loved by God because we're valuable we're valuable because we're loved by God so we're not loved by God because we're valuable God doesn't look at us and God doesn't just say man if I could just have Dean on my team everything would be great just give me Dean and if I could just have brother Curtis added to that Curtis Moore everything no 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 We're not loved by God because God looks at us and says, well, they're valuable, they're valuable, they're valuable. Maybe they're not, but no, God loves the fact that God loves us makes us valuable, makes us valuable in his sight. We have redemption through his blood. And the third word and the hardest word is propitiation. To propitiate means to turn away wrath, to turn away God's wrath. So God's wrath is turned away from us, those who deserve it, and instead is given to one by the provision of one who doesn't deserve it, meaning Jesus. The cross becomes the place by which the judge becomes the judgment. So on the cross, Jesus, the judge, becomes the judgment for sin. Martin Luther put it this way. On the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and said to Him, Jesus, you will become Peter, the denier. You will become Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David, that adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. You know, the word propitiation only appears two times in the New Testament. But the same word that goes along with it appears 20 times in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is translated as the mercy seat. Maybe some of you that begins to ring a bell. So the mercy seat, here's what we know. God commanded Moses to have the Ark of the Covenant built. The Ark of the Covenant would be placed in the Holy of Holies. And what was placed within the Ark of the Covenant So the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments placed within the Ark of the Covenant so the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one day. And so he's representing the people. And so him representing the people and the Ten Commandments. Well, what have the people done? What have we done with the Ten Commandments? We broke them all. What hope do any of us have when we stand before God's judgment? On our own, we have none. But what God did is he told Moses to not just allow the Ark to go in, With the Ten Commandments, with nothing else, he told Moses to make a mercy seat, a covering for the Ark of the Covenant that would have cherubims, angels with wings touching each other. And the picture is this. The priest would walk into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He was representing the sins of the people standing before the Ten Commandments that had been broken. And the only thing standing between the law and man's breaking of the law is God's mercy and sacrifice, holding back God's punishment. This is the picture here. And let me just say this. 2,000 years later, we look at this and we say this. Jesus has become our mercy seat. Jesus is the meeting place between sinful man and holy God. If you want to meet Jesus, brothers and sisters, it is through Jesus Christ. He is our mercy seat. He is our meeting place. He is our forgiveness. There was once a story told of a pioneering family um, in the plain and they saw an enormous brush fire coming their way. Well the father gathered all the family and he set fire to the grass all around them where it burned and he said get in the middle of what has been burned and so he gathers his family up. He covers them up and the brush fire comes but it does not consume what had already been burned. So this family, yes, they felt the heat of the fire, but they were not torched by it. And brothers and sisters, understand what propitiation means. It means this, that Jesus took the fire within himself so that we could stand and not be scorched by the fire. Jesus took it all so that we would, yes, we'll feel the the heat. Sometimes we feel the heat of things that happen, but we'll never be torched. Brothers and sisters, what we have in Jesus is not just a good teacher. What we have in him that demands our loyalty and our worship is he is a rescuer. He has rescued us from our sin through the payment of Christ. And then lastly, and these are our favorite words as Baptists, almost in closing, righteousness has been revealed as we boast only in Christ. As we boast only in Christ. Verses 27 and 28 says this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. And please finish strong with me. So if we could earn salvation based on the good things that we have done, guess what we would do? You and I would stand before God and we would say, God, listen to all the amazing things I have done. And we would stand before God and we would do what my dad used to always say about, about prideful individuals. He said they look like they're um, jackasses eating briars. And some of you would get that, others of you would look it up. But in our pride, just thinking that we have done so much good, saying, God, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. If good works could earn our salvation, we would think that we could boast before God. But we can't. Works will never earn our salvation, therefore we can't boast before. Before him. Now let me just say this. One would think that if you offered a person who understood they were a sinner. To be forgiven at no cost. That they would take it. Right? Someone who knew that they were sinner. So a criminal. If you say to a criminal down the court. You can go free at no cost. They would say deal. And you would think that from a spiritual side. That if you offered a sinner forgiveness with no payment. They would say deal. But. We don't. Why? Because pride makes us stupid. In fact, here's the deal. Pride makes us say, well, just tell me what I got to do to get saved and I'll do it. I mean, I'll walk the aisle better than anybody else. I'll be baptized better than anybody else has ever been baptized. Carry a Bible to church. I'll grab the Bible off the coffee table and I'll have the biggest Bible in church. Just tell me what I got to do and I'll do it. You know, the fact that we respond that way shows how prideful we actually are, that we think somehow we can earn it. And that's the whole point. The whole point is what does it take to be saved? Desperation, helplessness, hopelessness, knowing there's nothing in us to do it. Listen, why does God hate pride so much? He hates pride because pride caused the fall not only of Satan, but of Adam. Pride is the root of sin. Pride is the greatest problem of the human race. Pride suppresses the truth so that God is not as glorious as he actually is. Pride convinces us that we don't need God and we don't need Jesus. Listen to the words of Adrian Rogers. He said, until you come to the end of you, you won't come to the the beginning of him. Until you come to the end of you, you will never come to the beginning of him. So as believers, those who have nothing in our hands except our sin, and we come before God and say, God, you've dealt with this. And God saves us through Jesus Christ. May we take the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you have anything good to say, anything great in your life, boast in him. Boast in what he has done for you. Let me close this way. The righteousness of God has been revealed to us. We, the unrighteous ones, can be declared righteous through the work of the righteous one who suffered for our unrighteousness. The pardon is ours, but it must be received. I'm gonna end with a story I've told before, but one of the probably the top most or five top five, excuse me, most bizarre Supreme Court cases. Of all times, United States versus Wilson from 1833. The defendant, George Wilson, had pled guilty to several counts of robbery, and get this, and endangering the life of a mail carrier. Apparently, his crime was so serious, he was sentenced to be executed. Think about that. Let that sink in for a second. But President Andrew Jackson issued Wilson a full pardon. But then Wilson, for reasons we will never know, refused the pardon. It got so weird and difficult that the case actually went to the Supreme Court. And here's what the Supreme Court ruled. A pardon is an act of grace, which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment that the law inflicts for a crime he has committed. A pardon is a deed, to the validity of which delivery is essential, And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected. And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel. A pardon has been offered. But we can reject it. This is the irony and this is the tragedy of so many in our world. They will die and go to hell even though Christ has extended a pardon to them. Christ is saying, I died for you. My blood was enough for you. My payment was enough for you. God has extended this pardon, but we must receive it for ourselves. We're free, just like George Wilson did, to reject it. We're free to turn it away for whatever reason. But why? I think of the words of the 17th century Bishop, Jeremy Taylor, who once said this, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. God threatens terrible things if we won't be happy in him. Brothers and sisters, be happy in him. Be happy in what he has provided for you. Receive what he has given to you. God will not override you. God will not override your decisions. But understand this, until the day you die, God will pursue you. In fact, the reason you're here right now is because God's pursuing you. The reason you're listening online is because God is pursuing you. It's not an accident. God brought you to this moment because God's grace is pursuing you. Oh, to God, that we would understand righteousness has been revealed. Is it ours? Is it yours? Oh, today, I pray that it would be. Oh, today, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, may today be the day of salvation. Oh, today that we would understand the beauty and the glory of what God has done for us. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call the praise team forward and let's pray together. Father, in this moment, in this holy moment, Lord, having gone through your word, having seen this beautiful, amazing picture that Paul gives to us, or maybe there's a, a tug going on right now in our hearts and lives or people across this room are at home. The Holy Spirit in this moment is tugging. There's something not right. Maybe we've trusted ourselves for far too long. Maybe we trusted our faith or other religious activities, but what we've never done is trusted Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Father, I pray right now for any in this room or listening at home that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they turn away from trusting themselves or trusting their good works and turn to you, Jesus Christ, as their eternal Savior. Your word says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I pray also that you would wake up every redeemed heart in this room or watching online, wake us up today to the glory, the beauty, the magnificence, the joy of what you have done in our lives through your son. That we were dead and now we're alive. That we were blind and now we see. That we were deaf and now we hear. That we were lame and now we walk. That we were unable to do anything to please you and now, oh God, we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're able to let our light shine before others that they see our good works, and it brings glory and honor to you. God, help us not to live for less than what we have been made and redeemed for. We're just finish this time today. By your word, through your spirit, finish this time. In Jesus' name.